our series is Journey Through the Cross, and we've been talking about different aspects of, of the last week of the life in our, of our Lord's ministry, and, and um, we've been focusing predominantly on the book of Matthew. In fact, that's what we said we were going to do. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all inform us about what happened on that last week, and they have a lot of details when you put them together that creates an even larger picture and understanding, but we've been focused pretty much on Matthew's account and um, we talked about, we've been talking about things. This is where we've been. We've, we started by looking at that moment where Jesus was anointed in Bethany and, and um, the reaction of the disciples. We ultimately talked about how that seemed to be a part of what pushed Judas over the edge, or at least it could have been. Judas ultimately betrays Jesus. We looked at that moment of betrayal and sat with it. We talked about the Last Supper, that Passover they celebrated together when Jesus said, I'm going to define this moment in a different way because I'm going to talk about now how this has anticipated everything I'm about to do, that this bread that has been celebrated, this, this cup that represents the blood, it represents my body, which will be broken for you, and, and my lifeblood, which will be given for you and for this world. And then we, we, we traced Jesus' steps with the disciples who were left, and they went to the Gethsemane out of the city of Jerusalem, to, you know, crossing the, the Kidron Brook and up to the, to the Mount of Olives in the garden, and there is where Jesus prayed and, and settled the issue completely by saying, not my will, but yours be done. The betrayal of, the, of Judas at that moment, the, the kiss of Judas, the, the taking of Jesus before the, the council of Jerusalem, the rapidly assembled trial that he was put through in which the verdict was death, he should die. He fin they finished it off by beating him, slapping him, spitting on him, and saying, if you're the Messiah, prophesy who's hitting you now. And of course, while, Jesus is, while that's happening to Jesus, the whole other incident occurring with Peter is he is in the process of denying Jesus. And by the time he finishes off the third denial, the complete disavow, the heart-rending rend denial, that, that, that moment where Jesus is being let out of the courtyard and their eyes lock with one another. And we talked about what did the eyes of Jesus say to Peter? The love that never gives up. Believes even of, even in, he believes us even in our worst, that love. That's what we're talking about. That gets us to where we're going now to look at this example of what occurs when Jesus is brought before Pilate. Now, again, let's remember quickly that the authorities of Jerusalem did not possess the ability to have Jesus put to death. They could render a verdict, but they could not put him to death. They were under, at this point in history, the governance of Rome. Rome had asserted itself. Uh, all those in Israel had to pay taxes to Rome. Rome, however, had given um, this region, which was a, a historically a hotbed and always on the edge, uh, given them a higher degree of autonomy than most conquered peoples. I mean, they had the ability to set up their own religious and social order. They had their own governing body. But they were not given the privilege or the authority, I should say, to be able to put someone to death. That alone resided with Rome. And the Roman governor at the time was a man named Pilate. We know him as Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the procreator. He was the one who governed the region of Judea. Uh, the region in the north was governed by another man, another Roman puppet, a vassal of Rome, a man by the name of Herod. They called him King Herod. Herod also had his own notorious uh, style of, of, of governance. He was the one who also had killed John the Baptist on a whim. Uh, Jesus held him in very low regard. But suffice to say, there was a tension. Just stay with me on this, because it's going it's to inform what we're about to look at. There was a tremendous amount of tension that existed between the authorities of Jerusalem and the temple authorities in particular and Pontius Pilate. Pilate, it seems, did not like his assignment. 
It was not the assignment he had wished for, nor would many people have envied him. It was always, again, like I said, on the edge of some type of a rebellion, re insurrection. Uh, what Rome wanted was total peace. They wanted highest income taxation with lowest expenditure, which meant that your assignment was keep the peace at all costs and bring in the money to pay for the rest of the empire's bills. Pilate, that was his, his assignment. The leaders, on the other hand, um, you know, they were responsible for working with Rome. Pilate didn't seem to have any real sympathy for them. In fact, if anything, he appears to have held them in complete disregard. He made no attempt to familiarize himself with the culture that he was immersed in. He seemed to hold the, uh, the temple leaders in somewhat disdain. They, on the other hand, deeply resented, as most of the people did at that time, Rome and Pilate represented the worst of Rome. But they kind of needed each other. And so they had to work with each other, even as they sought to undermine the other. And this is sort of the behind-the-scenes drama and little chess piece, pieces that are being moved by these two groups. One group knows they cannot have Jesus killed apart from Pilate's sign-offs. Pilate knows they need him to do it and would like to, if at all possible, do the exact opposite of what they want. And so in the middle of all this drama and power play is Jesus. And he is there. He's been beaten twice, uh, at least once before coming to Pilate. And um, he's not necessarily looking that great. He's bound up, we're told here uh, in Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, that when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. That was their verdict. You are worthy of death. Um, you have blasphemed God. You are a mere man, and you claim to be what you can never be. And that's, of course, what had had been the catalyst behind their anger and envy. Jesus had uh, taught the people in the temple in ways that undermined their authority at the same time he had made or received, received an acknowledgement for something they believed he could never be. And they wanted him dead. That's what's going on here. But they had to get Pilate to go along with it. So they made a determination. They were going to reframe the issue. The issue wasn't going to be that he blasphemed and claimed to be a Messiah, the Messiah. The issue when they get to Pilate, they had already determined in their mind was, we are going to suggest that he is actually a threat, um, a revolutionary, a stirrer of the people that he is wanting to undermine. And Luke's account is going to make it clear. He's, he wants to undermine Rome. He's trying to get people not to pay their taxes. He's trying to create problems for you. And you need to get rid of him because he's going to mess this whole thing up. That's going to be their line of argument. Now, that brings us to this point. It says, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Now, John's account, just stay with me, is actually more extensive than Matthew's. Matthew's is sparse, but it's actually quite probing in its own right. Let's look at it. Verse 11. It says, now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. So here is Christ. Here is Jesus. At this point, he's not looking that good. He's bound up. Um, he's before Pilate. He's brought before Pilate. They make some statements about him being claiming to be a king, which he could never be. Pilate doesn't even use their vernacular. He uses a, a, a line that they would have not been comfortable with. They would have said, king of Israel. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Um, the governor asked him. And Jesus uh, replied, in a manner that actually is far more profound than it initially seems. Uh, Jesus essentially said to this, this de declaration on the part of Pilate, you have said it, or, or those, those are your words. Um, and implied in that statement was, was this, do you believe those words? Because if you do, then you have your answer. And if you don't, no answer I give will suffice. 
And immediately it seems to put Pilate on a bit of a defensive. In fact, as we're going to see in the process, and we see it less in Matthew's account, but in John's account, it's so real that by the time this is done, it's Pilate who's on trial, not Jesus. Initially, Pilate is somewhat caught off guard by this response. It was not what he expected. They continue on, though, to accuse Jesus. Well, what has he done, really? And when the leading priests, look at verse 12, when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, they basically said, again, he's, he's a stirrer up of insurrection. He's trying to get people to, to, to riot. He, he's teaching things that are stirring up the people against us and against Rome. And, and Pilate was already sensing this is really about you and him, not about Rome at all. But at the same time, all these accusations are being thrown Jesus' way. Jesus is standing there, and, and Pilate is expecting Jesus to, to say, something to make a case for himself but it says that as these things are being thrown his way Jesus says nothing total silence he won't even respond to them and you can see that now Pilate is a little uneasy he's a little frustrated I mean uh, you're looking at this and you get the impression that this powerful uneven man is becoming uncomfortable because here before him is this man accused of insurrection and he's kind of beat up he's not he, but he's calm. He's majestic in his silence. He's mild. May, you might even say meek. But clearly there's also one thing about him. He is unafraid. And it's not something that Pilate is accustomed to seeing when someone is so close to the death that he's about to get. And Pilate is disturbed. Let's just say he is unsettled at some level by Jesus. There must have been something about the presence of Jesus even there that as he looked at, as he looked at Pilate, look right through the man and basically said, despite all of your power, you, and this will come out in the other conversation, you have no power except it is given thee and only for a little while. There's all that's happening, right? And it says that Jesus is being accused. And Pilate, basically, the phrase here is, look, he turns to Jesus and he says, don't you hear, you can feel his frustration, don't you hear all these things that are being said about you? Basically implying, and it says, it says he demanded. What did he demand? He's basically saying, aren't you going to respond to what they're saying? Are you going to say anything? He's frustrated. You're not cooperating. What's going on with you? Speak up. That's, what he, that's what's happening. Jesus is silent. He won't say anything. Pilate is disturbed about it. There's this, he doesn't, now, he is not prepared. In fact, he's amazed. He says, he says that, you know, he's, he's kind of, but Jesus made no response to any of the charges. Look at verse 14. Much to the governor's surprise. What's wrong with you? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Are you going to say anything? Is this true? Jesus says nothing. We know what happens, by the way. This is not in Matthew's account, but we know something happens. If you read John's account, we're told that Pilate was in the middle of having the conversation with them, and one of them says to, G to Pilate about Jesus, says, you know, um, he started this. He's been talking about this here in Judea, in Jerusalem, in the south. But if you really want to get down to it, they said it all began when he was up north in Galilee. Pilate goes, what did you say? It started where? Up north in Galilee. Oh, that's, um, that's Herod's jurisdiction, isn't it? Um, you know what? This is Herod's problem. Have him taken away. and have, get, let, let Herod talk to him. That's not my issue. And we know that Pilate sends him off to Herod. Jesus gets before Herod. He won't, Herod says, do a miracle. You know, tries to get me. I've, I've always wanted to meet you. He, he's this power, power guy who's just really, the Bible describes him as in very vile terms. Historically speaking, he's described as being absolutely ruthless, almost paranoid. 
killed numbers of his own family, his own wife ultimately. I mean, it's just, just really blood, bloodthirsty, un, himself a very uneven, bizarre man. And Jesus is there, and he's being sort of told, entertain for me. Jesus says nothing, not even one thing. You're going to speak. They beat him again. Nothing. Send him back. Send him back to Pilate. He's doing nothing. I, he's in it. I, I don't know what he is. Whatever he is, he's no threat to me. Take him back to Pilate. Jesus is brought back to Pilate. Pilate is, is now going, I don't want this problem. I don't want this problem. Look what happens here. That picks back up. But there's another idea Pilate has. In, he, in his own mind, he's thinking, oh, this is, I, 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 I'm going to get out of this. I don't want these guys having the satisfaction and I, and I don't even feel that comfortable about the whole thing myself. I want to get rid of this problem. I have an idea. Here's his idea. You know, there's a custom. There's a custom that we have. It happens every time around Passover. Because what was Passover? Passover was the time when the Jewish people celebrated, especially Jerusalem. People came from all over the world, the ancient world, to gather there to celebrate Passover. Passover commemorated the setting free of Israel. It was the celebration of Israel's freedom from slavery, from bondage. And so it had become a custom that Rome, in their graciousness as overlords, would participate and allow for one prisoner to be set free, symbolically identifying with the setting free of the people at this time of the year. And Pilate thinks, I know what I'll do. I can solve this whole thing. I will pick the worst possible guy that I can think of, that I know is uniformly despised by everyone, not just by us, but by the people, a ruthless man, a murderer, clearly, a person who is known, one version calls it a terrorist in his own right, the man named Barabbas. I know if I simply say, look, you have a choice. Jesus, who some say, come on, you can't take seriously this claim as Messiah, look at him, and Barabbas, who you all hate and despise. He's thinking in his mind, that'll solve everything. I'll be done with the whole problem. It'll go away. I won't have to deal with it. They don't get what they want. I'm out of this thing. Let's move on. That's what he's thinking. Look what it says here. Now, the governor's custom each year, verse 15, during the Passover celebration was to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone that they wanted. But this time he sets it up. He says, this year there was a notorious prisoner, a man whose name was Barabbas. And as the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, who you all hate, or Jesus? Look at him. Nothing. The one they call the Messiah. Who do you want? Now it says in verse 18 there, we're, we're told this though, that he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. There was a power struggle going on. And just then, we're told something else occurs. Only Matthew's account tells us this. And in fact, it almost seems like it comes out of left field. The Romans were a very superstitious people. Dreams, omens, they meant things to them. Now what we're told here is that in the middle of this entire process, as Pilate is setting this up, you made the choice while that's happening, he gets a note. And a note that he's given is actually an urgent note that's being given to him by his wife. And his wife says this, essentially, whatever you do, don't do anything to this man. He is an innocent man. I had a dream. Look what he says, she says here in this verse. He says, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible terrible nightmare about him last night. Don't touch him. Whatever you do, let him be. I don't know what he is, but I don't want anything to do with him. So now you have another layer on top of what's already been going on. Remember, Pilate's already, one, he's he not comfortable with Jesus. Two, he doesn't want to give the people that he himself 
can't stand the satisfaction of manipulating him into a course of action that he doesn't even want to take. He already tried one time to get rid of Jesus, make it Herod's problem, comes back to him. Now he's got another situation. He's thinking, okay, I've got this thing set up. I'll let him choose between the worst scenario and this. I'm sure this will work. And then on top of that, while he's working this out, a message comes to him from his wife. Whatever you do, don't do anything to that man. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I had a nightmare about him. Don't touch him. That's the situation he finds himself in. Now Pilate is in a bit of a dilemma. He has reached, whether he realizes it or not, the moment of decision in his life. He has no clue what's about to happen. He's thinking, okay, this is a slam dunk. It's all going to work out. Don't worry about it. He's got his career. He's got everything on the line. He's looking at this thing. And it says here that that meanwhile, though, something else was going on. We're told that the... A contingent of those who had worked with the temple authorities had been infiltrating the crowd and were persuading them, and many of them were joining in and creating kind of a mob environment that the followers of Jesus were nowhere to be found. Remember, they had scattered in all kinds of different directions. Meanwhile, while this whole dilemma is taking place, the crowd is is growing into a mob-like frenzy, being told every, the people who are coming in are saying, you know, when that, when that situation is, comes up, you are, a, you are a crucified, you are to cry out that you don't want Jesus. To cry out for Barabbas. And I can imagine some of them saying, are you serious, Barabbas? Saying, yes. This is what happens. Look what it says here. It says, that, uh, the governor again asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And he's shocked because the crowd does something he is not expecting. They yell back, we want Barabbas! And look what it says, and Pilate responds, then, 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 but if, what should I do with, with, with Jesus? The one, this, this is a supposed Messiah, come on! They say, we want him crucified, verse 23. Now you see Pilate, he's now, he's knocked off his game. He is now, he's conceding. He's now appealing. Here he is in total authority, and now he's vacillating under the weight of what's happening. And he says, but, and you can see him, he starts to reason with the mob. He says, but why? 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 What, what has he done? There's no, what crime has he committed? Look at him. He, he's re- and the more he weakens his position, the stronger he inflames the response. An uncertain sound always does that. And they come back, we want him dead. Crucify him. That's their word. Crucify him. And we know, we know one more thing. The mob roared. Look what it says, verse 23. It says, the mob roared even louder. Crucify him. Now, we know from John's account, just stay with me on this, that they started saying something else that must have bothered Pilate as well. Almost made him afraid. They said, listen, we have no king but Caesar, which no true Israelite would have ever said. And if you let this man go, you, Pilate, who work for Caesar, are not Caesar's friend. Basically, you're saying, where's your loyalty? Our loyalty is with Caesar. Wow, he doesn't know what to do. He sticks. So he is, he is upset. He's angry. He does something that would have been a symbolic gesture because he's, he's stuck. He is literally stuck. I do this. His, my conscience tells me one thing. <laughs> my wife's warned me. I don't want to give in to these guys. At the same time, my career is on the line. This thing's looking like it's going to turn into a riot. It says that he was getting concerned. Here we go, verse 24. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere. He's trying to reason. And that, and that there was actually a riot that was starting to develop. And so he says, stop it. And he says, bring a, you get what you want. And he, he has a, a basin of water. We're told brought out, probably very large. 
fought out, and in front of everybody, he does something that they would have all recognized because it was, it was, a, they were, it was a custom to do ceremonial washing. And he says this, I, this is, if this is what you want, I am innocent. And he puts his hands into this basin, and he lifts them up. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And they, have, and they, so they yell back, well, then it was blood beyond us and, and, and on our children. But Pilate, listen, Pilate, there is no amount of water that cleanses you from this decision. And then we're told something else that Pilate does. You can't take, get, get, get rid of, release him, Barabbas. Barabbas, the now happiest man on earth, right? He's free, unbelievably so. Jesus already knew what was about to play out. The irony, of course, being the one who's set free is going to have the opportunity to be set free by the one who's taking his place. Jesus is watching this whole thing happen. Pilate says, I am innocent of his blood. No, you're not, my friend. <laughs> then what happens is this. It says that, and we read it so casually. G, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and then he ordered Jesus, bring him out. Have him flogged. And the thing about it is we read this. We say, oh, with a lead-tipped whip. You know, the cat of nine. Let me tell you something. The, okay, Jesus, he already been beat up. Twice, because Herod beat him up, and the night before he got beat up. But this time is different, because then they're going to strip him down. And when they take out this, this is not just like any, this is like, a, this is like torture. I mean, what's going to happen is this whip, it's got these pieces on the end of it that is designed in the hand of someone who knew how to use it to cause excruciating pain and tear the back to shreds. Because it would not only fly out the back, rip into it, and then you would yank it out, but there was also the idea of whipping it around the body as well. I mean, by the time they're done, Jesus is a bloody mess, probably staggering under. They throw a robe around him or some type of garment around him. They march him back off. They said, the Roman soldier, you take him now. They have, we are told, they have a lot of fun with him too. They twist him around, get a little crown of thorns, stick it on you now, prop, hit him, prophesy. Who, who is your one hitting you now? It's, just, oh, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's It's violent. It's, it's, it's just a... It's, Here's the thing. It, Jesus walks into this knowing where he's going. I have something to say about this. And I'm just going to have us prepare for the cross by putting a couple of things up here. I want to suggest, firstly, just stay with me on this because it's connected to what we just shared. I want to suggest that at the, at, at, the, at the core of this, this is all about each one of us having to decide what we want to do with Jesus. You know, I look at the, I look at the, I look at the verse the 20, what is it, the 22nd verse. And do you see that question that's asked? Do you see that question? Pilate didn't know it. But he asked the question that is the greatest question that can ever be asked. The question that you and I must all answer. And ultimately, every human being, eternally, destiny, according to Jesus, will depend on the answer to this question. What should I do with Jesus? What should I do with Jesus? This is the great equalizer. Not the greatest question in life. It's not how much I own, not how much I possess, not even who I marry, not my career, not my degrees. What shall I do with Jesus? At the end of the day, everything hits on this. Some people say, well, I will acknowledge Jesus, who some have called the inescapable Christ, I will acknowledge Jesus from afar. I see him as maybe a good teacher, but that's about it. Others say, well, 
I won't even deal with it. I will ignore it. It's not an issue to me. Others say, I outright reject it. I want nothing to do with it. Others say, I embrace him as my savior. I believe. We all must decide. But then even then, we must decide, what does that mean to us? How much are we willing to embrace of Christ? What is that going to do in terms of informing our life? How, how does that really affect us? Is it a belief from afar, or is it something that draws us close? What will I do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? This is the ultimate question of life, the supreme question of life. And then I'm going to say this next thing with tears in my eyes, or at least sadness in my heart. Because the cross also reminds us of one other thing. Not only of the great question of life, but it also reminds us of this, this second piece here, which is this, that, that we should never be surprised by the, the wickedness that is in our world. If one of the things the cross teaches us is that they're beyond the beauty of, of our world and beyond the, the things that we say are good things, and there are many, because we all at some level represent something of the image of God, even in our fallen condition and broken state. There's this capacity for goodness that we all can acknowledge and the beauty of still what we see in others. But I'm going to tell you something. The history of our world also is a history of unspeakable evil as well and amazing injustice and pain and the shedding of innocent blood. And I'm going to tell you something, okay? I, I, I listen to, when you listen to the news, you know, you, you read about, you hear about stuff, you know, people killing people, kidnapping, it's just one thing after another, and you just get kind of callous to it. Unless it hits close to home in some way or in a particular kind of mood or something really catches us and you go, I can't believe anybody would do such a thing. It, it really becomes like noise. We hear it, but we're sort of accustomed to it. That's happening in our nation. Okay, listen, you understand? We see a sliver of what God sees. Uh, unbelievable, all over the world, in every corner, in every dark place, flying over the, the, the airwaves electronically, you name it, things done for everything we know. There are thousands of things we never know. Even when there's good intentions, rationales being made, there are innocents that get caught up in it. I'm telling you, and, I'm, and part of what I'm reminded of is this, that into this ugliness of life, Jesus comes. And he fully, and God fully engages it. Now, he doesn't, whatever else is going on, we can never let it be said that God doesn't understand unspeakable evil. That he himself enters into it fully. And he knows what it is, not only to be abandoned, not only what it is to suffer, not only what it is to be treated unfairly. The beautiful one is completely, completely rejected, utterly rejected, completely rejected. The worst of it done to him, body broken, Man, I mean, I'm telling you, in every conceivable, God, why does God do, why does God enter into that? Fully enters into it, fully engages the unfairness, fully engages the awfulness of the human condition. And then one more thing that we need to remember, because that is not the end. One thing we know is this, that we have not only a God who loves us enough to fully engage evil, but he is a God who loves us so much that he even has a love that is greater than even what the worst of humanity can ever do. Think about it in this, that way. There is a love. What does it teach us? It teaches us that the love of God is greater than the worst of humanity. We've said this verse how many times? God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever would believe in him, truly embrace him, if it didn't matter, it wouldn't have been said. If you believe and receive, we'll have what? If you have, you have this gift. 
For God loves this world and he gives us only because whoever believes in him would not perish. The implication is without that belief, we perish. But that the world through him might have what? Life. Life now, life to come, life overflowing, the life, the gift of God, the love that is greater even than death. You know, think about it. And then Jesus went on to say this, because God does not send his son into this world to condemn it. It's obviously, Jesus says, already in need. Death is everywhere. He says, no, God does not send his son into this world to condemn it. It already has that on it. He says he has sent his son into this world that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3, 16 to 17. That's Jesus' own words. He's reminding us all that, he, that the love of God is greater than the worst of humanity. And guess what? One last thing I'll say. It's not only greater than the worst of humanity. It's, the great, it's, it's greater even than the worst that's in you and the worst that's in me. And how much I'm grateful for that. That the love of God is greater than the worst not just in humanity, but the worst in me. And we get to decide who Jesus is to us, how much of him we will receive, how much of him we will embrace, how much of his gift we will have. That's what we're talking about, a love that is relentless, a love that is stronger even than death. Many waters cannot quench it, the love of God, inescapable, greater even than hell and death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, the relentless pursuit of the love of God that walks through the evil and says life wins. This is the way of Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate and acknowledge, the victory, the victory of the cross that leads to life. Lord, let's pray. Lord, I want to ask you to just keep working in our lives. I pray that what we've always talked about, what we know to be true um, in many ways, just because we believe things, Lord. We, we, I, I want to ask you to help us to just maybe have an even higher degree of openness than what we've had, Lord, just to listening for your voice this week. Again, just so many people everywhere are turning their hearts towards you, trying to, to just acknowledge what you've done, the, the love of God, unquenchable, unquenchable. And I thank you, Lord, because it's not just something, you didn't just die for the world. You died for us. You died for me. And um, your love is great. Your love is strong. And I thank you for that, Lord. I pray that for whoever would believe, whoever would receive, take this cup and drink the water. The water is for anyone who will have it. But the choice must be made. Pilate washed his hands in the water. We've been invited to drink of that water that will never allow us to thirst again. The unquenchable eternal water. For even as you said, you are that water, that living water. Come into us, Lord, living Savior, not, not just a dead Savior, a living Savior who brings us life beyond death and tells us once and for all, evil doesn't win, God wins, death doesn't prevail, life prevails. For this, Lord, we believe and are thankful. Bless us, bless this time of our giving as we honor you together. Bless our closing song and prepare us, Lord, for this special week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>